When I was in college, there was a, a popular quote. It was even printed on one of the t-shirts that I had. It was allegedly said by St. Francis in the 1200s, and it was, preach the gospel all the time. If necessary, use words. It sounded really good at the time. Our lives as Christians should display the effects of the gospel to the world around us. We are changed people as Christians. We see the world differently. We live differently. And that is because of the gospel. And I suspect that is what St. Francis was trying to say. But I think the Apostle Paul, I think he would have been critical of that quote, preach the gospel all the time, if necessary, use words. It implies that words are not even necessary when preaching the gospel. But of course they are. Listen, the gospel is not something that we do. The gospel is not something we are. The gospel is not something we live. The gospel is good news we believe. Fifteen years ago, when my good friend Matt Phelan took me to evangelize with him at the Sunrise Mall. We didn't just walk around. We, and by we I mean he, gave people million dollar bill gospel tracts. And he preached the gospel. I was so uncomfortable. I was in my mid-twenties, and I, I think he would put this track down on the ground in the mall, would wait for someone to pick it up, and then he would start asking them questions, and he would start to draw out the fact that they were sinners, and they're these complete strangers, these young men, and he's asking them, have you ever lusted after a woman? And I admired his boldness. But he was getting to the point where he could tell them something, where he could tell them the good news. He knew that they weren't just going to become Christians by walking, watching us walk around the mall. No, to preach the gospel, it was necessary to use words. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 10, verse 13 and 14, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So to be saved, you've got to call on the name of the Lord. You've got to say, Jesus, save me. He says, though, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone 
preaching. A few verses later in verse 17, he says, faith, it comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. For sure, the transforming power of the gospel should be displayed through how we live. But first and foremost, the gospel, it is a message. It is a message that must be preached and then believed. Well, as we'll see tonight, Paul does both in our text. He declares the gospel message and he demonstrates the gospel's power. I've prayed all week for this time and now I'd ask that you pray with me. Will you please bow your heads? Father in heaven, by your spirit and through your word, change our hearts and minds, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In the first part of this chapter, where we are, verses 1 through 11, Paul, he is reminding the Corinthians of the historical facts, verses 3 through 7, and the transforming power, verses 8 through 11, of the gospel. And the gospel, remember, is the good news that Christ has saved us. He has saved us from the wrath of God by absorbing the wrath of God in our place. Now, according to Paul, that gospel message is totally historically reliable. It's not just a story. It's not a myth. It's not legend. It is historically reliable, which is why Paul here is going to point out the facts. And the gospel is also personally life-changing, which is why he points out the transforming effects of the gospel. In other words, in these verses here, Paul is saying about the gospel, it happened, verses 3 through 7, and it has changed me, verses 8 through 11. So my prayer has been that tonight, the gospel would have its life-changing effect on every single one of us. If you are not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, that you would hear the facts tonight, that you would hear the truth, and you would believe the gospel, and you would admit your sin 
and you would commit yourself to Christ. If you are here and you are a Christian, that you would be reminded of the facts. That you'd be reminded of the truth and your belief would be strengthened and you'd be challenged and you'd be encouraged to live a life, Philippians 1.27, that is worthy of the gospel. So let's begin. And first, let's consider the historical facts of the gospel. And keep in mind, the reason that Paul is stressing the historical reliability of the gospel is because there were some in Corinth, and we'll see this in weeks to come, beginning in verse 12, there were some people who disputed these facts of the gospel, namely, the resurrection of Jesus. So let's read verses 3 through 7. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. So did you hear all the gospel facts? Did you see all of them? There were four. Christ died... He was buried. He was raised from the dead. And he appeared to many people. Let's start at the beginning. Number one, Christ died. At the beginning of your New Testament, Matthew and Mark, Luke, John, they all give the account. Jesus was about... 30 years old, and he was executed by a cowardly politician who was controlled by an angry mob. And his death was horrible. He was mocked. He was spit on. He was tortured. He was finally nailed to a cross. Large spikes were hammered through his ankles and through his hands, and he was left to die. Horrible. And if you were there, that is exactly what you would see. But there would also be a lot that you you couldn't see. There was something that was taking place spiritually. Jesus, you know, he was God. And that's how he was able to perform his many miracles. That is how he was able to speak with such authority. It is why the disciples were shocked 
to see him seemingly helpless on the cross. But he was there willingly. He was in that horrible place willingly. He could have escaped, but instead he endured. He said in John chapter 10, verse 18, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He was not merely falling into this angry mob's plan. They were also falling right into his plan. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 and 23 tells us that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28 tells us that Pilate and that angry mob, they did whatever God's plan and his plan had predestined to take place. Jesus was there willingly. Well, what was the plan? What was the reason for Jesus to die on this cross? Jesus told his disciples shortly before he was arrested, as he took the wine and the bread with them, and he says, this is my body. This bread represents my body, which is given for you. So his body on the cross, it was given for his disciples. Jesus himself said in Mark 10, 45, I did not come here to be served by you. I came here to serve you. I came to give my life. Now picture his life being extinguished on the cross. He said, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying, I am going to give my life to pay a price for many. And then in our text today, Paul puts it this way. Look, in verse 3, Christ died. Why was he there? For our sins. Listen. Our greatest problem is sin. I'm sure you have lots of problems. You've got external problems. You've got internal problems. You've got personal problems. You've got family problems. You've got work problems. You've got lots of problems. Your greatest problem is sin. R.C. Sproul said sin is cosmic treason. It is betrayal of the highest order. According to John Bunyan, sin is the rape of God's mercy. It is the wicked taking advantage of the goodness of God. Charles Spurgeon said, sin is spitting in God's face. It is stabbing God. According to the New City Catechism, sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created. 
rebelling against him by living without reference to him, not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of all creation. So your greatest problem is that you stand before a holy and perfect God guilty of sin. And sin must be punished. And apart from a Savior, apart from salvation, it will be punished when you die and face God. Hebrews 9.27, every man is destined to die and then to face judgment. But, According to this first and central fact of the gospel, Christ died for our sins. That sounds like hope. Christ died for our sins. That means that in his great mercy, God poured out his righteous wrath on Christ in my place. Jesus willingly took my sin and suffered for it, and not only mine, 1 John 2, 2, but the sin of the whole world. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 21, he describes it this way, for our sake, for our sake, God the Father made him, that is Jesus, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin. He knew no sin. He made him to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So now if you are a Christian here tonight, you've believed that gospel, you have trusted Jesus, you have put your faith in Christ, committed yourself to him, it is now impossible for you to experience God's judgment. Jesus in your place suffered God's judgment. And so you cannot ever face judgment. Your future is settled now and forever. Christ died for our sins. That is the central fact. It's the first one Paul lists. But it is the central fact of the gospel. Believe it. There's more here. Let's keep reading. Verse 3, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And if you look, that phrase is used how many times? It's used twice. He died in accordance with the Scriptures. And verse 4, he was raised in accordance with the Scriptures. We've covered this. 
But that means that his death and his resurrection were according to God's plan. In the scriptures, that is, in the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, for centuries, God had been pointing forward to the death and the victory of Christ through the priests and through the sacrifices and through the Passover lamb and through the lamb that was there in place of Isaac and through the words of all the prophets like Isaiah in chapter 53 and David in Psalm 16. And so Paul is saying here that Christ died and he was raised in accordance with all of that, exactly the way God said, in accordance with the scriptures. A second fact now, he was buried. Christ died and now Christ was buried. Now why mention that? Why mention the burial of Jesus? Is that an important part of the gospel? Is that, is that something that we need to emphasize? Well, it depends what you're doing. If you are evangelizing, probably not. But remember, what is Paul doing? He is establishing the historical reliability of the gospel. Living people are not buried. So his burial, which could be proven, was proof of the death of Jesus. That's why Paul mentions it. So Christ died, he was buried. Number three, he was raised on the third day. Christ was raised back to life on the third day. He died and was buried late on a Friday afternoon. That's day one. He lay in the tomb all of Saturday. That's day number two. And then he rose from the dead, never to die again on Sunday. Now, Technically, and Paul speaks precisely here, carefully stating the facts, Jesus did not raise himself from the dead. God the Father raised him. Galatians 1.1 says the same thing. God the Father raised him from the dead. And that's really important. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. You remember those three powerful words he said before he gave up his life. He said, it is finished. What he came to accomplish was finished. He came to die as a ransom. He came to pay the price. He came to die in our place. He came to suffer so that we might live. 
Well, was that price accepted? Was it enough? Did he suffer adequately as a ransom for sinners? He did. How do we know that the price he paid was satisfactory to God the Father? God the Father raised him from the dead. Sacrifice accepted. That means Jesus had conquered death. It was the death of death. That means that he is alive now. He is alive today and he reigns as king. There's going to be more about the resurrection in weeks to come. It will be the focus of Paul's attention in this chapter. But that's enough for tonight. One more final fact. Number four, he appeared. And Paul belabors this. Look with me. After Jesus was raised from the dead, verse 5, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In other words, you can go and ask them. Verse 7, then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And Paul mentions these appearances for the same reason that he mentioned Jesus' burial. As the burial was proof of the death of Jesus, all these appearances, they were proof of his resurrection. So this is what Paul is saying. Put this all together, these four facts. This is what Paul is saying in verses 3 through 7. This is not just a story. This is not made up. This is not a myth. This is not mere legend. Jesus actually died. He was actually buried. We can go and visit the tomb. Jesus actually rose from the dead. His body wasn't kidnapped. He didn't just faint. It wasn't his identical twin on the cross. All theories, by the way. He actually rose from the dead. And we know he rose from the dead because he appeared to all these people. He appeared to us, and we'll die saying this, and they did. And he appeared to all these other people. Go and ask them, what is he saying? It happened. Let's move on to the second part. He has stressed the facts and the historical reliability of the gospel. Now in verses 8 through 11. I hope you're encouraged by those historical facts. And now I hope that you'll be encouraged by this transforming power of the gospel. Paul does this often when he writes. He drops these pieces of his testimony 
And he paints this picture of what a changed man he is. And many of you have experienced change because of the gospel. Many of you have experienced change because of your relationship with Christ. Few of us have seen this kind of change is what's described by Paul. Verse 8. Remember he's talking about all these appearances. He appeared to all these other people. And then last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. Untimely born. That was a phrase that was used to describe the premature birth of a baby. When a baby was born, not when the baby was supposed to be born. That baby was untimely born. And Paul's talking about his spiritual birth here. Christians, you know, are born twice. A physical birth and a spiritual birth. We're born, and then what did Jesus say to Nicodemus? You've been born, but you need to be born again. You were born, and your body cried out, and now you need to be born again, and your soul will cry out in faith to Jesus. So Paul is saying, I, I was, when you look at all the apostles, he says, I was the last one. I was not born the same way they were. They were born spiritually as they walked with Jesus and as they ministered with Jesus. Paul was born much later, probably a year later. Paul was born last of all, are his words. And he was born last of all because while the other apostles were preaching the gospel, Paul was persecuting Christians. That's why he was born again last of all. He was busy arresting believers. He was busy breaking up Christian families. He was busy ordering and overseeing the martyr of Christians. And if you read Paul's letters, 13 of them in the New Testament, and if you, if you listen carefully, you can pick up on the deep shame that Paul felt over this. Some of you, since you've become a Christian, certainly before you were a Christian, there's deep shame over ways that you thought and talked and behaved in your past. You pick up on that in Paul's writing. It's here in verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, why, Paul? Because I persecuted the church of God. You can picture the tears dropping on his letters when he would reflect on this. 
Also in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, he says, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. He said, Christ Jesus, he did come in to the world to save sinners. And do you remember what he said? Of whom I am the worst. I don't think that's hyperbole. I don't think Paul is exaggerating. I think that Paul really believed, as many Christians do, that there couldn't possibly be anyone who was more sinful and selfish and rebellious apart from Christ than he was. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, 11, I am nothing. Paul felt deep shame over his sin. And yet, God was gracious to Paul. No one is beyond the grace of God. That is the great lesson that Paul's life teaches us. No one is beyond the grace of God. And in verse 10 and verse 11, he tells us the effects of this gospel. By the grace of God, I am what I am. You see, this is who I was, he says, and there's this deep shame. But he's also aware of God's grace. And now by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul was completely changed. His life was turned upside down. He was not recognizable. He had been transformed. And isn't that true for all of us as Christians? Who would we be if we were not in Christ? Who would we be if we were not held together by Jesus? Who would we be if we didn't have the good news of the gospel to believe and to hold on to? Who would we be if we didn't have the love and affection of God? Who would we be? John Newton, he famously said, Though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. And I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge, and he quotes this verse, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul goes on, and his grace toward me, it was not in vain. In other words, God's grace, it was not wasted on me. It produced a result. On the contrary, he says, I worked harder than any of them. Paul was changed by God's grace. At the time he wrote this letter, he had 20 years of difficult ministry under his belt. And as far as Paul was concerned, unless we think he's being proud, we'll see what he says in just a minute again. But Paul could look out and say, I, I have worked harder than anyone else. I mean, no, the, no one has worked harder than I have. I have completely spent myself. 
I've almost died multiple times. I've been willing to give up my life multiple times. He says elsewhere, it's been my desire to die and to no longer suffer. 100%, 100%, whatever God wants me to do, whatever God wants me to be, though I still struggle with sin, I'm fighting, I'm fighting, I'm fighting. No regard for myself, no regard for my health, no regard for my personal desires. He could look out and say, I have worked harder than anybody. I've got 20 years of hardcore ministry under my belt. Now, he is not boasting when he says that. He's not bragging. He is testifying to the power of the gospel. He was, he knows, totally enabled by the grace of God. What did he say right before? By the grace of God, I am what I am. And now, after this apparent boasting, he says, though it was not I. But the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. He was a persecutor. Verse 11, he's become a pastor. Paul is saying, in this bit of testimony, my sin was great, and yet Jesus died for me. He says the gospel did two things. It made me ashamed of my wickedness, but it made me aware of God's sufficient grace. I was a persecutor of Christians and now I am a preacher of the gospel. It has changed me. It happened, verses 3 through 7, and verses 8 through 11, it has changed my life. So there we have it. It is the historical facts of the gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised from the dead. And he appeared to many as proof of his resurrection. And through this testimony of Paul, we have the transforming power of the gospel. In conclusion, can you apply this? Can you finish this sermon? The questions we always ask when we read God's word, when we study God's word, when we listen to a sermon, there are Two questions that we're always asking, aren't we? 
what is God saying? And why is he saying it? Apprehension and application. What does this mean and so what? What is God saying here? What is Paul saying here? He's giving us the facts of the gospel. He's describing the transformative power of the gospel. Why? Why, if you're here and you're not a Christian, did God inspire Paul to write this 2,000 years ago? Why, if you're not a Christian, did God orchestrate your day in such a way that you ended up here? Why did God have us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 on Sunday, October 4th? Why, if you're here and you're not a Christian, is this gospel being presented? Why are these facts of the gospel and this testimony of Paul before you? And I can tell you, it's so that you would hear and believe. It's so that you would trust Christ for salvation. It's so you would believe that you are a sinner that needs to be reconciled to a God and that God has sent Jesus to live, suffer, die, raised from the dead in your place so that your sins could be forgiven and you could be reconciled to him. You should commit yourself to Christ now. When this service is over, before you go to bed, you should tell another Christian and you should come back here. That's what you should do if you're not a Christian. If you're here tonight, and I know many of you are, and you are a Christian, what is the point of all this? Isn't it so that you would be reminded, because you can't be reminded enough, isn't it so that you would be reminded of the gospel? that you would be reminded that this story has become your story, that Jesus has died for you. And he has opened your eyes to see that. He has opened your ears to hear that. He has opened your heart to feel that. He has opened your mind to conceive that. And you've been filled with love and affection for him as you've learned how great his love is for you. Isn't it so that you would be reminded of how your life has been transformed? I am not the same person that I was when I was 16 years old in 1994. Survived a car accident where I fell asleep at the wheel. Caused me to examine my life differently. 
and the gospel that I had heard so much and heard so many times was believed and embraced like never before, and I haven't been the same since. Or as in my early 20s, as my understanding of this gospel deepened and my total rejection of trying to earn salvation in any way took place, and how me and my wife Kristen, we have never been the same since. We've been transformed by this gospel. If you're a Christian, you're reminded of that. And you're filled with gratitude. And we praise God. One of the ways we express our gratitude, you know, is we take this Lord's Supper together. And we eat this little piece of bread and we drink this little cup of juice and we're remembering that Christ died for our sins. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we remember and proclaim the Lord's death tonight. If you are visiting with us tonight, you're welcome to take communion if... If you are a Christian, if you are a baptized believer, you've turned from sin and committed yourself to Jesus and committed yourself to his people. And so you're committed to a local church, whether it's this or another one that preaches the same gospel that you heard here tonight. If you're a Christian, you're welcome to take communion with us. We ask in a few moments as the servers are walking around, if you'd stand up if you want to take communion and we'll bring you the bread and the juice and then sit down so we know that you have them and wait and we'll take it together as a family. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for this truth of the gospel. We're so glad that this isn't something that we hope is true but it's something that we know is true. We know that Jesus died. We know he was buried. We know he was raised from the dead. We know he appeared to so many people. They died believing this. They died proclaiming this. And you've made it so certain as deeply as you could in our hearts. And it has changed us. We've never been the same since. God, help us tonight to believe this gospel. Help us to hold on to it tightly and to give you all the glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.